Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading researchers, authors, and clinicians discussing issues in attachment theory. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. Today, Karen launches her four-interview, eight-part series on family therapy and attachment theory with part one of her conversation with Dr. Peter Frankel about attachment theory and family systems theory. Part two will be released on October 11th. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you today here from Chaddock. We are going to be continuing the series that we recently just kicked off about attachment theory and family therapy. And um, I am just so excited about this series and the guests that we were able to set up to be here to talk with me about family therapy and family systems theory. I want to go ahead and give you an introduction of who I am going to be interviewing today. And it is Dr. Peter Frankel. And he is an associate professor of psychology at City College of New York. He is also a former faculty member at the prestigious Ackerman Institute for the Family and NYU Medical Center. And he also has a private practice in New York City. He has published on a wide range of topics, including integrative approaches to couple and family therapy, time issues in couples, which I want to add, I have found particularly fascinating that area that he writes about and distress and divorce prevention. He's also done um, qualitative research and written on family-based trauma treatment. I want to also tell you about some of his books. He is the author of Sync Your Relationship, Save Your Marriage, Four Steps to Getting Back on Track. And his newest book uh, is going to be coming out quite soon, Last Chance Couple Therapy. In fact, I think it's already out. Last Chance Couple Therapy, Bringing Relationships back from the brink and that's uh, published by Norton he also uh, wrote the um, family-based approach to treatment related to relational trauma in incest so this guy is prolific like I had so much fun getting to know him and everything he has written in terms of preparing for this podcast. And I think you guys are really going to enjoy what he has to say. I also want to draw your attention to the article that he wrote that made me like aware of him and what he is doing in the field of family therapy and that was in the psychotherapy networker there's two versions of it um, there's an older one that's longer but a more recent one that you can easily find on the web is whatever happened to family therapy so i think you're really going to enjoy what he has to share with us and the interview will be coming right up so just hang tight well, hello, Dr. Franco, and welcome to the Attachment Theory and Action podcast. Thank you for being here. My pleasure, Karen. Thank you for inviting me. 
Yes. Well, so as you know, from our previous conversations, one of the, the things that really caught my attention about your work was an article that you wrote some time ago, and then an excerpt from it was published more recently, I believe early this year, in the Psychotherapy Networker, and it was called Whatever Happened to Family Therapy? Mm-hmm. That's right. In fact, it wasn't an excerpt, but rather an update. Okay, an update. Well, okay, that that's good, because when I read the original, I was awake. I was thinking, wait a minute, I think there are some other things, okay, that, that weren't in that original, but I thought that was because my memory wasn't serving me well. No, Thank no you. it was an update. They wanted to kind of get a sense, you know, that the original article was published in 2005, and the editors at, uh, at Psychotherapy Networker approached me to say, so where's it gone since then? And there have been yes. very important developments in the field since two, 2005, especially around addressing issues of culture, social location, meaning race, ethnicity, gender, gender identity, class, and really attending to those. So more of a sociocultural approach to therapy and social justice approach. That's very important now in the field. Yes. Thank you for that. I know that there was one line as I reread the article where you said problems exist between people and not within them and i thought or maybe it's from one of your book chapters i've been reading a lot of your things but i thought does that ever capture bowlby's idea that attachment is a relational process and it happens he even used the language and still attachment researchers use this today the caregiver the caregiving system Absolutely. And I think in many ways was one of the first systemic thinkers. Yes. Yes. And Sue Johnson, you know, frequently will uh, say that. And I completely agree. He he caught a lot of, you know, negative vibes from the psychoanalytic community because because he was actually interested in observing interaction. Yes. Back in the day, you know, you, you saw the mother separately, the infant or the child separately, and never the twain shall meet. So he said, well, there's something going on interactionally here that shapes both the mother and the child. Right? So the attachment relationship is bi-directional. If a child is, you know, difficult to soothe or uh, temperamentally somewhat avoidant to begin with, and some kids are, or, or very highly arousable. This is Jerome Kagan's work on on the role of inborn attachment. Some moms and fathers too, let's not forget about us dads, uh, will have a hard time soothing a kid who's a bit colicky or you know, difficult or doesn't seem to want to connect. And that can affect the parent. So it's not a one-way street here, the attachment relationship. It's very much bi-directional. Yes. And I think that's really highlights why I wanted somebody with a family family therapy background and training and a deep systemic understanding to be on the podcast. I think that um, many young therapists today are not being well-grounded in systems theory. Yeah, unfortunately true. And, um, just a, a, a personal piece for myself. Um, 
I worked in foster care earlier in my career and it was the height of everybody talking about reactive attachment disorder and, you know, these kinds of things. And I realized one day that I was becoming so focused on the pathology pathology of the child that I was entirely missing other things in the family system. And it alarmed me to the degree that I entered a two-year post-master's marriage and family therapy program through Menninger Clinic. Very good. And I could imagine that's happening to other therapists as we've become so individually pathology, individual pathology-based. So I would like if we could start out, if you could just walk us through the beginning of family therapy, the whole renaissance of it and, and the exciting ass because you were part of that. And I, I want listeners to hear that from you in this very beautiful way that you share it in some of your articles. Yeah, well, sure. Um, you know, I, I, so many ways to start this, but maybe I should start with my own personal training anecdote, which I describe in that first uh, version of, of whatever happened to family therapy for the networker. Because Rich Simon, the editor of the Networker, always asks us authors to say something about how we came to be interested in yes. whatever the topic. Yes. So I went to Duke University for my PhD. It was, at the time, a psychodynamically oriented program. And I was absolutely what you would call a true believer. I, I came to the program excited about psychoanalytic thinking. I uh, taught courses as a grad student to undergrads on it. Um, But as I started seeing kids uh, and teens, I started to really think about like, well, what's going on between the mother or the father and this kid? And don't we need to work with them together? Because kids would talk about what's going on at home. And yet at the time I was in grad school from 82 to 87, the, the child guidance model still prevailed, which was the notion that the child's therapist works with a child without uh, much contact with a parent. The parent is assigned to another therapist. And even the therapists in the, in the strict child guidance model, the therapists are not supposed to talk to each other, which just logically and clinically seems absurd to me uh, because it, these, these are people who live together and right. basically having an impact. And we've all grown up in families and we know that that's the case. Uh, so that seemed a little odd to me. And, you know, I, I would I was working with this one kid who I think I call Ronnie in the article. It was yes. typical, you know, low from a low income family, white kid uh, down south. And um, he was getting into a lot of fights and I was doing quite good by my supervisor's account, uh, play therapy with him. So he'd come in every week, he'd play out his aggressive feelings with the uh, soldiers, I would talk about it, and, and so forth and so on. And it was a good session, and my supervisor thought it was great work, he'd go back and beat the heck out of another kid. Mm-hmm. And usually because that other kid would say, your mama is a, you know, fill in the blank, Yes. Negative thing. And I, I had met the mother once and she was a, a lovely person and at the same time struggling, struggling uh, to help her son and on her own and, you know, struggling with uh, with with money and so forth. And I thought, geez, it would be so good 
to meet the two of them together and do some work. Now, I had no course in family therapy either in grad school. My, my child psychopathology professor, John Cooey, inserted one short chapter from, uh, from the classic book by Watts Lewick uh, and, the, and the group at the Mental Research Institute, right? one of the founding um, institutes in family therapy from, from the 50s. Gregory Bateson, Don Jackson, Watts Lewick, people like that. And the chapter was called More of the Same. And basically, it laid out the way in which one person's behavior affects another person's behavior, affects the first person's behavior, and so forth, looking at these circular patterns of interaction. This basic idea, and, you know, as most of us who went to grad school um, at the time and before learned, you know, the parent affects the child, not the child affecting the parent. The parent affects the child, so it's unidirectional. So one of the major innovations of family systems which is now fully integrated into developmental psychology, developmental psychopathology, is just the simple, obvious notion of circular interaction. So if a kid, let's say, is hard to soothe, like a, a toddler or an infant, and the parent doesn't have you know, adequate emotion regulatory abilities for herself uh, uh, or for the child, that can be frustrating, and the parent exhibits a lack of skill or frustration, which then leads the, the child to get even more negatively aroused, which leads to more negative arousal and problematic um, uh, soothing attempts from the parent. And, and it's a circle rather than, um, you know, I think that the more simplistic idea that whoever the parent is and their psychological profile and so forth affects the child in a one directional way. You know, there's a concept in developmental psychopathology called goodness of fit. I'm sure you're familiar with that term. Yes. Right. And some parents are quite good at soothing an obstreperous, difficult, you know, highly uh, arousable child, and some have a very hard time with it. Yes. So, so you know, contemporary work with parents and infants um, really looks at the relationship, looks at what's going on, and coaches the parent to try new things, which then has an impact on the child. And then the child's better response has, of course, an impact on the parent. So just to get back historically, since you've asked for a, a, a brief summary of the history, um, basically most of the major innovate, early pioneers and innovators in um, family systems were psychoanalytic psychiatrists, mostly men, because at the time, Men had the most privilege and voice in the field, but even one woman, Virginia Satir, yes, who you know, who was a, a major, major person in the field, but it was mostly white, middle to upper class, heterosexual men, psychiatrists, not even psychologists or social workers so much, except for Virginia. Yes, right? and they started um, looking at families uh, where there was a member who has schizophrenia or some other serious disorder. And what's interesting in the field of family systems is that family, family therapists often develop their ideas around very hard to treat um, problems. Anorexia, Sal Mnuchin's work, early work, uh, working with uh, girls suffering from anorexia and their families. Uh, Gregory Bateson, who actually was not a psychiatrist, but an anthropologist, 
married to Margaret Mead, actually. Don Jackson, one of my heroes, uh, who was a, a brilliant uh, uh, psych- psychiatrist. Uh, and so they were, they were working with schizophrenia and looking at the family interaction patterns and starting to think about what happens between parents and kids who are struggling with these disorders that amplifies the disorder. So one thing, I'm jumping forward in a bit uh, uh, here, uh, is that family therapists today certainly uh, abide by the idea that there are biological factors in things like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, all manner of issues, alcohol uh, abuse, uh, biological predispositions, and so forth. So, so it's not that family interaction uh, patterns cause something like schizophrenia, but definitely we know from research by Vaughn and Leff and others that, um, that the interaction patterns between or among family members can exacerbate or ameliorate. Right? So people bring their personalities, they bring their predispositions and so forth to a relationship, and that relationship uh, depending on how it goes, either is going to make things worse or make things better, right? So we have a much more at this point kind of complex biopsychosocial, even spiritual um, conception of uh, mental health issues and so forth. So, you know, what was happening in the field was in the 50s and then it's the 60s, a number of pioneers were were working independently there weren't family therapy conferences or anything like that barely was a term for what they were doing so you had the group in palo alto the mental research institute you had murray bowen in washington dc also a psychoanalyst whose theory is intergenerational approach looking at genograms and uh, issues of differentiation uh, was very much influenced by his psychoanalytic Training. You had Sal Mnuchin, Salvador Mnuchin, who's an Argentinian Jew who um, developed structural family therapy. To my mind, still and probably forever, the most well-articulated systemic uh, uh, perspective and theory on family functioning. So he was um, he was in for originally actually in New York at the Wilwick School for Boys, kind of a, a treatment center. Um, uh, for, for kids, and he was working with low-income African, mostly African American families, and also sort of felt like you know, we can't just work with these kids in this therapeutic boarding school. Basically, um, uh, we, we have to work with the families because these kids are going to come back, go back to their families, and we want to have the family interaction. Um, be adequate so that they uh, the kids don't end up when uh, back in the institution again. So he started working directly with families, uh, and there were other places. Certainly, Virginia Satir, who worked originally with the Mental Research Institute folks, went off and really developed her own experiential approach. So there's a number of pioneers, and then we get to the 70s, and finally there are conferences uh, where people are presenting their work, usually live. Uh, presentations with families on stage and then therapists could ask questions and comment and you know as they say in the article um, there started to be as it typically is in our capitalist society competition for students and different institutes and unfortunately um, you know a lot of the concepts for instance in in Sal's work and Mnuchin's work 
and Bowen's work are quite similar, but different language. I talk to my students about this all the time. So mm-hmm. Nugent talks about relationships being either on a, on a high end of closeness, enmeshed, overly close, mm-hmm. disengaged. Bowen had his own language for that. They were either fused or, um, or cut off. So you have a lot of kind of different theorists uh, coming up with um, different language for the same ideas. And we're now at a stage, fast forward quite a bit, uh, where we are much more about integrating the wisdom and the ideas and the research support across different models. And as you know, a lot of my writing has been on how do we integrate these things? How do we help students, which is always my major concern as a professor, feel not overwhelmed by all the different models? How do we help them sort of come to a parsimonious way of thinking about family functioning uh, and and uh, bring the field together because we need to come together as the young bloods sang long ago <laughs> uh, yes. to um, to really have a place in this field because while family therapy was cooking along and getting very um, um, exciting in the 70s and we thought it was going to become the new paradigm for mental health it didn't happen for a lot of reasons uh, one, still the power of the medical model uh, and, um, and the emphasis on, uh, c- certainly in the 90s, the decade of the brain and the big focus because of fMRI studies on brain functioning and psychotropic medications. Uh, we've, unfortunately, family therapy has still not become, uh, and systemic thinking more broadly, has not become the dominant way of thinking about individual mental health issues, depression, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, substance abuse. But there, at the same time, there's lots of research and excellent clinical models showing, for instance, that couple therapy, uh, when there's a partner who is depressed, is um, as or more effective than individual therapy and medication. I mean, there's so much research supporting a systemic approach to individual, quote, psychopathology, uh, that at this point, it's it's kind of, uh, frankly, frustrating and sad mm-hmm. uh, that the dominant psychiatric establishment hasn't just said, okay, look, this is a more effective way of treating this issue. Certainly when you get to kids and conduct disorder, oh my goodness, there's four major groups, uh, multidimensional family therapy, that's Howard Little and Gail Dakoff in Miami, Jose Chapisnik and Danielle Santisteban in Miami with their brief uh, strategic systemic approach, uh, Scott Hengler and his group on multisystemic therapy, and um, James Alexander, who recently passed, who developed functional family therapy. These are all empirically validated treatments for kids with conduct disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, um, and substance use and overuse. Very well documented effects of working from an ecosystemic uh, perspective and more effective than treatment as usual, which is usually groups or individual therapy or what have you. So the data are, frankly, overwhelming in terms of the effectiveness of uh, a couple and family therapy. I, I should do a little plug for, uh, for your listeners, too, of the forthcoming sixth edition of the Clinical Handbook of Couple Therapy, which has chapter after chapter by John Gottman, John and Julie Gottman, 
um, Epstein and their group at the Cognitive Behavioral Couple Therapy, uh, Jay Laveau, who was one of the co-editors on uh, working with uh, couples headed for divorce, intergenerational approaches. I am honored to have a chapter in that as well on my therapeutic palette integrative approach. Uh, so, th so there's so much evidence at this point and clear articulated models for how to work with the relationships that at the very least, even if they don't cause all the time the problems, they certainly exacerbate and maintain them. So in family systems, we're more interested in, because that's where, the, where we're going to be most effective, is interrupting these vicious cycles of interaction that maintain or exacerbate mental illness and um, other sort of psycho psychological problems than we are in proving that the family relationships caused it. It's really kind of irrelevant in some ways. Yes. What we know is, however it started, in endogenous issues, relational issues, because sometimes depression does develop from, let's say, poor marital quality. There's no question about that. And the impact yes. of trauma, I mean, I can go on and on and I'm rattling on here, so... I'll stop. Yes. Let you... <laughs> yes. Well, you know, um, more recently, also family-based, attachment-based family therapy for suicide, depression and suicide pre prevention in adolescents. And in one way, you know, it's it's being touted as this new therapy that we're gathering evidence on. And in another way, it's like, well, wait a minute, like this this was being said you know in the 50s and 60s um as you just Absolutely. explained um so uh this is so wonderful and rich and i'm looking forward to continuing this conversation um listeners please join us again next week for part two with dr frankel where we're talking about attachment theory and family systems theory and the intersection of the two. So please join us again next week. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory. 